Invictus is a poem written by the British poet William Ernest Henley in 1875. I'm going to read it to you. It's not very long. I believe it's actually there as part of your quotes and notes there in your bulletin. Uh, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Context is worth knowing. Uh, Henley wrote that in the months following complications that he experienced from tuberculosis that caused the that led to the amputation of one of his legs and the near loss of the other. Uh, Invictus, it's a, it's a poem that captures something of the British stiff upper lip, and it's oftentimes quoted to convey that sense of of moral indignity and fortitude in the midst of adversity and you know, it's brought in the bear in all kinds of different ways, all kinds of different mediums when you want to convey some of that raw courage and stubborn steadfastness in the, you know, in the face of whatever it is that one is facing. And that's all fine. Here's my question. Is it actually helpful? Is it actually sane? Is it actually true? Sounds good. You know, machismo. You know, you kind of want to stand up and cheer by the time somebody's done reciting it. But is it true? Does it help? We are at the end of a nine-part series on gospel-shaped evangelism. And here at the end, it seems like a question it might be worth asking. We've, had a, we've covered a lot of ground, a lot of ground, good, good things that we've talked about and been able to, to engage together with in the course of the, the series and the, course, the Sunday morning courses and the community groups, and I hope in your devotional time as, as well uh, during the course of, of the week. But here at the end, as we're landing this plane, it seems like this question is well worth our asking, and that is how can we keep going in evangelism? How can we keep going? And if it's not in the spirit of Invictus, (laughs) then how do we do it? How can we do it? How do we keep going? If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're trying to find that, I will not insult your intelligence by telling you it comes after 1 Corinthians, which it does. But 2 Corinthians is in the the New Testament, which comes after, well, the letters come after the Gospels, then Acts, then Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. That's where we are. Uh, Chapter 4. This is in the midst of quite a bit of correspondence that Paul has been having with this church there in Corinth. Uh, This is uh, the second of the letters that we have. We call it 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 18. Uh, we're going to be kind of doing this at a 10,000-foot level, not really delving into too much detail, but getting a, a sense of the general theme and uh, the ideas that Paul is conveying here 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to get at this question, how can we keep going in outreach and in evangelism? Okay, here we go. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, having the mini this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for working in the course of that relationship between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth there in that roughly mid part of the, the first century, working in the course of that correspondence and that relationship and his concern for them and what they were struggling with that he would write this letter and that you would speak through him in a way such that we have exactly what you wanted to be recorded. The wonder, the miracle of the inspiration of Scripture such that we have somehow Paul's words as the writer but you the Holy Spirit as the author. We, we know then that we have confidence confidence that we can stand and firmly so upon this because it's real, it's true, it's your word. And at the same time, because it's your word, it's not just the confidence, it's the humility. The humility that we have to have at the same time to not just stand upon it, but to stand under it. So we ask for both. And that too is a miracle if such confidence and such humility would be in place in our poor hearts. So we are asking for that now. and We know that you are delighted to hear 
such prayers, even if they be half-hearted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I might have asked a strange question just a little while ago. It may have struck you, some of you a little odd to say, um, how do we keep going in evangelism? Because that seems to imply a struggle. And so that may seem strange to, to some of you. And so I, I want to take a step now back and talk about the challenges, the very real challenges that we face in terms of outreach and evangelism so that we can then understand uh, why the question to ask how we keep going is actually even pertinent. So in some parts of the world today, I hope you know this, you should know this, that certainly one of the challenges is outright, physical, violent persecution by antagonist opponents of the living God. Closer to home, it's not that, but it's alienation, can be, or relational rejection. And in either one of those arenas, you can find yourself tempted to just give up, or back off, or alter the message, change it, alter it, take away, add to, whatever it takes just to get people off your back. In addition to all of that, there can be questions. Questions that you begin, as you're, as you're moving out there and getting outside of your comfort zone and, and engaging with people, and you find yourself plagued with questions that you've never had. Doubts come to your mind and your heart that you've never wrestled with before in, in the course of, of that. To say nothing then of just the, the concern that we feel for other people and where they are spiritually. Um, the, the, the tough swim against the tides of, of culture, and uh, just the memory, the memory of our own failures in the past. All of those and so many more are challenges, very real challenges that we need to, to reckon with when it comes to evangelism and outreach. And just to be candid, that can be wearisome. That can be wearisome, deeply tiring. In, in, in a way. Um, you know, we, we read earlier from Matthew 9 and 10, it was in chapter 9, towards the end of chapter 9, where Jesus is using the image of a shepherd and his concern uh, for the well-being of his flock who are harassed and helpless. He also uses the image of a farmer who has his eye towards this great harvest. And we need to let, by the way, we need to let those images shape our imagination in terms of Part of what it means to be engaged in evangelism and outreach, there's that shepherding mentality, that, that farming mentality, to let those images shape our imagination, but also realize something else, and that is a shepherd and a farmer are setting out to do tiring work. It's not easy work. You don't do it on a laptop and, far, and, and you know, just... Send it in. Outreach can be challenging. It can be wearisome. What will sustain us? Well, Paul's telling us here what sustained him. We're getting a glimpse into the heart and the mind and the impulse of the Apostle Paul himself. Counsel good, solid, godly counsel in terms of what sustained him and therein what can sustain us. God has given us a message for this world. It is a message unlike any 
that the world has ever heard. He is sending us forth as messengers unlike any the world has ever seen. And he is giving us a motivation as we go forth as his messengers with this message, a motivation unlike any the world has ever known. All three of those, message, messenger, motivation, otherworldly. Otherworldly. Unlike anything the world has, has ever known, ever seen, ever experienced. It's beautiful and it's surprising in all three Ways God has given us this message and this otherworldly motivation as we go forth with this message, that we would then be sustained, that we would then not give up, that we would then carry on. What is that? What does it look like? How does Paul show that for us here in this text? Three ways. First, God is working in his people, or working in people, I should say. God is working in people. He is showing forth his power, and he is bringing us to glory. These are these these deep inner motivations driving the fuel, the fire that's meant to carry us forth, sustain us as we go forth. His working, his showing, and his bringing. Let's look at these three in turn. First, what will sustain us? What will enable us to carry on? The reality that God is working in people. And not just that fact, but also how. And we see it in verses 1 through 6. Now, I'm not going to read all of that. I'm going to read some of it here in just, just a second. But Paul, all through this, is beautifully honest, beautifully candid with us. He is not playing Candyland here. He is not just being rosily optimistic and Pollyannish in his portrayal of what this looks like. He's being honest and candid all through this text. And he begins by speaking of the reality of darkness. The reality of darkness is that he speaks of an inability of so many to see. Of a, of a spiritual blindness and deadness, of a veiled heart and a deadened heart that cannot perceive, that cannot understand, that is unwilling to see, unwilling to understand. And because it's a consequence of, it's an effect of, the, the influence of, the God of this world, Satan, whose work is real now and terrifyingly so. So much so when you consider who it is that he is blinding people to see. Consider the veil, the thickness, if you will, of such a veil that we cannot see the glory of the Son of Man himself. Such is his influence upon people in this world today. And therein with that, because of that, that inability to see, there is this powerful temptation towards discouragement on our part as those who go forth with this message. Discouragement, a temptation then to, to, well, okay, then I guess I need to take things into my own hands. I need to do things my way according to my own wisdom and understanding. And maybe that just means changing the message, altering it, adding to it, taking away from it, making it more palatable that people would see. That's the temptation because of the discouragement. And Paul says, no! No! Absolutely not. Because what he shows us in these verses, verses 1 through 6, is that the, the reality of darkness is met, and more so, by the light of the gospel. 
And it's the only way that darkness can be met. Verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the gospel. Two things, at least two things, you could, we could speak of here just in those two verses that Paul well, I just read from, from Paul. First, the necessity of the gospel, and then the power of the gospel. The necessity of the gospel. Paul is very clear here that we or anyone would come to see Jesus, would come to see who he is, why he's come, and why that's a big deal, why we need him, and why we need what it is that he has come to do. The only way that's going to happen is through the gospel. So there is a necessity to the message of the gospel, if I can put it this way, an exclusivity to the message of the gospel because that's the only way anyone's going to hear and understand who the living Christ is and their need of Him. And with that, Paul also speaks of the power of the gospel. You may have caught some of these um, reverberations or echoes from Genesis where we read in, in Genesis 1 that God, through His Word, speaks into a context where there is no light, and therein light comes forth. And it's the same thing again and again and again and again today in the human heart. Where there is no light, He speaks, and there is light. The dawn of a new day. The sun comes over the hill, and it's Light has come. And that's the only way. That's the only way the light's going to come is through this powerful gospel. And they're in the necessity of this gospel. The reality of the darkness is met and more so by the light of the gospel. And it's the only way this can be. And this is the assurance, though. This is the assurance we have. God is working in people, but how? Through what? The gospel. The gospel. Now, how does this land for us today? And just thinking about this, processing as a point of application. Just, just the simple thing. Satan's work is real. But his power is limited. You need to keep those two things straight. Don't go too far off the rails on one side of those. Go right in the middle. Satan's work is real, but his power is limited. Satan, think with me, can remove sight, but God can restore it. Now just think from a physical, like a surgical procedure. Someone's eyes are ripped out of their head, and the surgeon comes along with this skill and restores their sight. Now you tell me, Who's got the greater power? The destroyer or the healer? Yeah. It doesn't take much to tear things apart. It takes a whole lot more to put it back together. A whole lot more. Satan can inflict. Jesus can heal. It's a world of difference between those things. 
And he does this, Jesus does this through the gospel. The gospel, and that's the only means by which that light is going to come. So then I beg this question of all of us. Why then would we change it? Why then would we play fast and loose with it? Why then would we back off? Knowing it's the only message. It's the only way. It's the only thing that will bring that light into the darkness. So why are we going to mess with it? Why on earth? Why on earth? The assurance we have is that God is working. God is working through the power of the gospel, the light of the gospel. Again, we've been, all of us, given a message for this world, an otherworldly message, sent forth as otherworldly messages with an otherworldly motivation to sustain us. And part of that is this. The confidence, the assurance that he is working, but how he does that work. How he does that work. Which takes us to the second thing. For not only is God working in people, he is also showing forth his power. And we see that in verses 7 through 15. And again, Paul is beautifully uh, candid and honest with us here. He's not sugarcoating anything. He's not playing fast and loose or selling us a bit of bill of goods in any way at all. He, you know, he began by speaking of the reality of darkness, and now he's going to speak of the reality of weakness. Ours. And this is something else that we have to, to reckon with in a sobered sort of way. So he begins there in verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. And I'll just stop there. We'll come back to that. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now these jars, what, what he's referring to are these earthenware vessels that are disposable, just, just everyday containers that everybody's got lying around, and when you're done with it, you just throw it out. So here's what you have. You have this... Um, disposable container holding a treasure of inestimable worth. Now that jar of clay image is something that was used not just by Paul but by other writers in the ancient world to convey weakness. The weakness of the thing being referred to. And here Paul clearly means to us to refer to use this image to refer to the weakness of the messenger. The weakness of the messenger carrying this treasure of inestimable worth. Now, he begins with the image, and then he goes on from verse 7 to talk of examples that show this weakness in action, if, if you will. So let me read verses 8 and 9. You can, this is why he says what he does in verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So, you, you know, they're, they're vulnerable. We are. He is. His party. We are. Followers of Christ are vulnerable to such experience, and then the only way they can survive that experience is by the preserving power of another, which we'll get into in, in a second. So, the weakness of the message, the examples of this weakness, and if that's not enough, he speaks of the, a pattern of death in play, a sharing of suffering, the suffering of Jesus that his followers will experience in this world. And why? Well, he tells us, verse, back to verse 7, 
But we have these treasures and jars of clay. This is why. This is why this weakness we have. We go through this. We experience this. We have this treasure and jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Or skipping down to verses 10 and 11. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So what you see here is this, whereas you saw, we were looking at the first point, the, the reality of darkness being met by the light of the gospel. Here you have the reality of our weakness being met by the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection. Or if I can put it this way, this principle that we live in as followers of Jesus. Life comes through death. Life comes through death. That's what was true for Jesus. That's what has to be true for his followers. Life comes through death. We see it at work in Paul. Paul is speaking that very thing here. Just the astonishing nature of the, of the claim that, he, that Paul is making here. Paul is saying that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in him and in his experience. It's an astonishing claim. It's what enabled him to endure those adversities. That, you know, those four quick things that he lists there in verses 9 and 10. I go through this, but I, I'm not completely undone. Well, how? How? The power of the living Christ at work in his life. And not just at work in his life, but he presses on to say in the work of, in, in your life. It's at work in your life. The reader, uh, these Corinthians, he says that very clearly there in verse 12. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. How so? Because they see, they see the suffering, the terrible experiences, the anguish that Paul goes through. They see that, and then they come to see also the reality of Jesus. The living Christ, his kingdom Come now, at least partially, even as it's coming in full later. They can see it, the dynamic of that present in his life, even in the midst of his suffering. And so life is coming through death. Through Paul to his readers. This is the assurance that we have. This is the comfort that we have. This is the, the confidence that we, that we have, that that the reality of weakness is met and overmet, if you will, by the power of the resurrection. This is, the, this is how God works. His power shown through our weakness. This is always the way. This is the only way His power is going to be shown forth is when we live weakly. Live in that. Acknowledge that. In a sense, celebrate that. It's the assurance that we have. This is how he works. And always so. He shows his power through weakness. So, some of you may have heard the, the news just this past week that the uh, uh, 
J.R.R. Tolkien's estate has now changed leadership. Uh, from his son for years, his son Christopher has been managing the estate, and that's led to a certain direction, and many would say a very good direction as far as property rights and, and licenses and all such. But now that the leadership has changed, a new generation, and Amazon, you may have heard this, is moving in very quickly, and it's very likely that it's going to be a, a TV series of some kind that's going to be created in the coming years based on the world of Middle Earth. Now, for some of us, that scares the spit out of us because of what they might do. For others, that might say, wow, that's really cool. More Frodo. I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. It all hinges on how faithful they're going to be to the themes. Now, let me tell you what one of the, the pro most profound themes in Tolkien's work is, and that is the value and the place of humility, of weakness, of weakness. In the Silmarillion, Gandalf is quoted as saying, Many are the strange chances of the world, and help off shall come from the hands of the weak when the wise falter. Years later, at the Council of, of Elrond, um, when uh, so many are there debating, what should we do with this ring of power, and if we're going to get it into the fires of Mordor, how is that going to happen? And Thankfully, it was fairly well portrayed in the films, uh, faithfully to the books. And Frodo steps forward. Frodo Baggins steps forward and says this, I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. Fantastic, you know. I will take. I don't have any idea what I'm doing, but I'm going to take it. I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. And what you have coming out of that is, well, first, who is Frodo Baggins? He is a hobbit. He is a halfling. And through him, through the hands of the weak, right, Gandalf's words, help comes. It's a profound theme. You see it again. Why am I bringing this up? Because God uses jars of clay. He is determined to work through jars of clay. The weak thing. The suffering one, the weak and suffering one, he is determined to work through. Life comes through death. Here's how this plays out. You put the pressure on a weak thing, and its weaknesses are exposed. As its weaknesses are exposed, the cracks begin to show. And that's horrible. That stinks. We scream. We rant. We rave. We don't want to be weak. We don't want our cracks to be shown and exposed. We don't want to be, we don't, we don't even want to know ourselves this way to say nothing of anyone else seeing this. But what happens when the cracks are exposed? Those who are watching can see the treasure in, that lies within, right? The jars of clay. The gospel, the living Christ. That's how he works. Through jars of clay, through the weak thing. Our, in our, it's in our weakness that his suffering is manifested. It is in our, in our suffering that his healing is manifested. It's just the question I just have to ask myself and, and ask you, all, all of us, just together, wrestling with this together. Do we dare believe this? 
Do we dare believe that it is better to be weak in suffering? Do we dare go that far and trust Him to work with us in that way? We need to because that's how He works through jars of clay. Through jars of clay. Friends, that's the encouragement we have. That's what can enable us to hold on and to press forward. God shows His power through weakness. He's given us this otherworldly message, and you see this therein this otherworldly motivation to keep going with this message. He works through weakness. Third thing. So, he, what keeps us going, what keeps us engaged, what keeps us going forward is... The assurance, the promise, He is working in people through the Gospel. The reality that He shows His power and shows His power through weakness. And then thirdly, He is bringing us to glory. He's bringing us to glory. Verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, Paul is so beautifully candid. He's so wonderfully honest with us. He's, not, again, not sugarcoating anything. He is telling us about darkness. He is telling us about uh, weakness. And now he is just being straight up about hardship and affliction. He speaks of our wasting away, speaking to a physical weakening. We are dying. You're born, you're starting to die. That's what it means. There is a disintegration with all of us. This, this wasting away. And as if that's not enough, on a, he speaks of affliction. And troubles and tribulations and anguish and, and suffering. Uh, burdens that we, that we bear. What in the world, with all of that in mind, could keep us going? Could enable us to sustain? To preserve? To keep going into this world? Mixing it up with, with others? Um, sharing our faith and staying true to that faith. The reality that there is a greater weight that awaits. There is something that counterbalances, that tips the scales in those when we consider uh, the wasting away and the affliction. And Paul speaks of that here in this, these verses, 16 through 18. He speaks firstly of a present work of renewal. Something is going on right now, inwardly. He is being changed. He is being transformed. That's the promise that for any believer. The ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, making them more, making us more and more like Jesus. Slowly, but surely. It's not, that's not the only thing he speaks of. He speaks of that present work of renewal, but that coming to completion with a future completed work where it's in full of renewal. Well, everything that has begun 
is final and, and full, all the obstacles cleared away, all the setbacks done away, and it's done. And, and, and Paul is, is saying we, we need to have our eyes on that, of something that's coming in the midst of the hardships, in the midst of the heartaches, to let that ballast, to let that balance, to let that give us some footing one eye on things right in front of us, but at the same time an eye on the things ahead of us, on that horizon, at the same time. We are not escape. This is not escapism. This is not pie in the sky. Remember that, that quote from C.S. Lewis earlier in the service? Um, from uh, uh, Mere Christianity? I, I was thinking about this uh, just this morning. And... Um, I don't know how many of you have, have remember the or have seen the film March of the Penguins. I'm just going to take a shot at trying illustrating this idea of, of, of enduring something with something else greater in, in view. Uh, we're not talking about an awareness of the future and a consciousness of the future numbing our minds, but rather awakening, rather sharpening our, our focus. So, so March of the Penguins is not about a bunch of nuns at a convent. It's, a, it's about... Emperor penguins in the Antarctic. And um, the female, some of you may know, of course, well, obviously, the female lays the eggs, but then she transfers the egg to the male in a very, it's a very, you know, delicate operation that has to take place. And then she disappears. Now, not, she's not abandoning anything, but she disappears for four months to go get food and then bring that food back and... I won't tell you how, but give it to the, the little chick that by this point has hatched. But so where does that leave daddy? Daddy stays behind, minds the store, taking care of said egg, and withstanding winter temperatures, sometimes getting down to 80 below for four months, not eating. The only moisture you have is the snow that's melting at your feet and you lose half your body weight. Now, I don't pretend to know anything about the instincts of an emperor penguin, but it does seem to me to be a reasonable illustration and picture of seeing something through to the other side because you can, you can see what's coming, and so it enables you to endure and sustain and carry on even in the midst of this hellish experience that you're going through. Well... It's something like that here, it seems like to me. Again, our, our eye towards future glory, being the ballast, being the ballast, being that, that which gives us footing in, in the now. One eye on the here and now, the other eye on the there and then. And I'm not, and again, not talking about escapism. I'm speaking of, I'm not playing down the reality of and the pain of what's in front of us, but rather playing up what's coming. And this needs to be a, the topic of our prayers for ourselves and for one another. That, oh, that we would see our troubles as what they are, light and momentary in comparison with something weightier and eternal that is coming that enables us to, to, to live out of, what well, we begin to live out of that when we are weary even in the midst of outreach, when it's just gotten to be too much and we're just too tired 
We don't feel like going further. There's hope to be had here that the Apostle Paul is speaking us to. The hope being, and not a pie-in-the-sky kind of hope, not kind of a, you know, a Hail Mary pass, but a sound assurance of something we know is coming in the future. That's biblical hope. Confidence of something that's coming in the future. That's biblical hope. And the God who has given us that hope has given us, that hope, has given us this message, this otherworldly message and this otherworldly motivation to stay the course. All through this passage, Paul is presenting to us a series of paradoxes, things that challenge our most normal, basic, everyday premises and assumptions. Or if I can put it this way, God's ways are surprising. He's working, showing Bringing those three points. His ways are surprising. Now, here's my question. Should that surprise us? That God's ways are surprising? Should that actually surprise us? I mean, as creatures standing before the Creator, should, that, should it be surprising that the creature is surprised? In view of the Gospel, right? I mean, the Gospel message is not just wonderfully good, but it is beautifully surprising. Should we then be surprised by the ways of this God with us? This week, of course, we have Thanksgiving coming. And I just want to throw something out there, something for you to think about along these lines. Now, I know many of us are gathering with family and friends, and some of us are looking forward to that, and some of us are dreading it. And for others, it's kind of a hybrid in between, and you don't really know how to feel. And you know that the last thing you want to do is talk about politics. And you know that the last thing you want to do is talk about the, the, the current news cycle and this and that because of the raw nerves and explosion of stuffing and sweet potatoes that could take place because of that. And so you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to avoid, I just need to avoid all of this by putting my attention into football teams I don't know about and don't care about, but I'm going to watch that game so that I can escape the carnage, potential carnage, if we talk about this, or you'll just go back to the table for a third piece of pie. Can I say that there may be a third way? And that is maybe to talk about the historical origins of the holiday in the first place. I'm going to read you an excerpt uh, from a few years ago from a, a breakpoint uh, piece that Chuck Colson did and uh, then explain why. Most of us know the story of the first Thanksgiving, at least we know the pilgrim version, but how many of us know the Indian version? No, I'm not talking about some revisionist, politically correct version of history. I'm talking about the amazing story of the way God used an Indian named Squanto as a special instrument of his providence. Historical accounts of Squanto's life vary, but historians believe that around 1608, more than a decade before the pilgrims arrived, a group of English traders sailed to what is today Plymouth, Massachusetts, when the trusting Wampanoag Indians came out to trade, the traders took them prisoner, transported them to Spain, and sold them into slavery. It was an unimaginable horror. But God had an amazing plan for one of those captured Indians, a boy named Squanto. Squanto was bought by a well-meaning Spanish monk who treated him well and taught him the Christian faith. Squanto eventually made his way to England and worked in the stables of a man named John Slaney. Slaney sympathized with Squanto's desire to return home 
And he promised to put the Indian on the first vessel bound for America. It wasn't until 1619, ten years after Squanto was first kidnapped, that a ship was found. Finally, after a decade of exile and heartbreak, Squanto was on his way home. But when he arrived in Massachusetts, more heartbreak awaited him. An epidemic had wiped out Squanto's entire village. We can only imagine what must have gone through Squanto's mind. Why had God allowed him to return home against all odds only to find his loved ones dead? A year later, the answer came. A shipload of English families arrived and settled on the very land once occupied by Squanto's people. Squanto went to meet them, greeting the startled pilgrims in English. According to the diary of Pilgrim Governor William Bradford, Squanto, quote, became a special instrument sent of God for our good. He showed us how to plant our corn, where to take fish and to procure our other commodities, was also our pilot to bring us to unknown places for our profit, and never left us till he died. When Squanto lay dying of fever, Bradford wrote that their Indian friend desired the governor to pray for him that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven. Squanto bequeathed his possessions to the pilgrims as remembrances of his love. Who but God? could so miraculously convert a lonely Indian and then use him to save a struggling band of Englishmen. Who indeed? And it's worth noting, you know, um, there in that, the context of that first Thanksgiving, what had happened in that last year. Over half of them had died from sickness and starvation. They're thousands of miles from home. They have to be questioning the wisdom of this venture and their God. And literally out of the woods comes this Native American speaking the king's English. Is this not an illustration of God's surprising ways? Shockingly surprising ways. Well, that's the gospel. A surprising message. And his ways of sending us forth with that beautifully surprising message are surprising. Wonderfully surprising in the ways that he promises to sustain us as we bear this message into the world. Let's pray together. Lord, you call us to be heralds, heralds of a message. May we know our message. May it be doing its work within us. We ask that you would give us your eyes for people around us, your heart for people around us. Give us a sense of our place in this larger story. Oh, we ask that you'd help us to face the immensity of this task. Help us to face the deficit of our own resources and to lean hard into your promises, knowing that you are good. Knowing that you are good. May you show your surprising ways in us, and through us. In your name we pray. Amen.